history, we find ourselves in the midst of the 4th century, the long 4th century, looking at the Trinitarian controversies that emerged during that era. And uh, we're going to open up with a reading from Scripture. So if you'll open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 12. Psalm chapter 12. And we'll begin reading at the first verse. To the chief musician on the eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Amen. And our opening prayer, as is our custom for our afternoon service, we like to open up with a prayer that's taken from the period that we're studying. Again, still can't find a a written prayer from the the writings of Athanasius. Might be my fault. I don't know. Maybe I'm not Googling correctly. But... uh, we have a prayer this, this afternoon from the, life, uh, from the writings of Gregory of Nyssa, who was uh, somewhat of a contemporary of Athanasius. He, uh, I guess you could say he lived a generation afterwards, but uh, Gregory of Nyssa is the one who will uh, help us out this afternoon. So let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> you, O Lord, have freed us from the fear of death. You have made the end of this life the beginning to us of true life. For a season, you rest our bodies in sleep and awaken them again at the last trumpet call. You give our earth, which you fashioned with your hands, to the earth to keep in safety. One day you will take again what you have given, transfiguring with immortality and grace our mortal and unpleasant remains. You have saved us from the curse and from sin, having become both for our sakes You broke the head of the dragon that had seized us in his jaws in the yawning gulf of disobedience. You have shown us the way of resurrection, having broken the gates of hell, and you have brought to nothing the one who had the power of death, the devil. You have given a sign to those who fear you, the cross, to destroy the adversary and save our lives. Amen. Well, before we dive in, I'd like to uh, direct your attention to the handout that hopefully you received. Is there anyone that did not get the handout as they walked in? Uh, Raise your hand if you need one. It looks like everyone is covered. That's good. Um, So the outline, or the handout, I should call it a handout because it's not a typical outline that you might be used to in our church history uh, uh, survey. What I've done instead is I've given you a few things here. Uh, First off, you have just a a basic outline. Um, The dates that are aligned there to the left, uh, those are dates that are um, uh, important in the life of Athanasius. Uh, Mixed in with that, that those dates that are aligned to the right, which I have in bold and italics, uh, those are dates that are significant in Roman history in general. so uh, you, you can see how those two things uh, go together. Um, you have no, a few numbers here on the, on the left side. Uh, those numbers correspond to numbers that you can find on the back side of uh, the map, which 
By the way, I, uh, Pastor Gary did an excellent job. with. I, w- I was impressed with the way this came out. Uh, this is not the map I sent him, um, but it, it's much better than the one that, uh, that, that I gave him. So this is fantastic. Um, but those numbers there correspond to uh, places here on the map to kind of give you an idea of uh, where Athanasius is at various points in his life. And so hopefully, hopefully that's helpful for you. And then at the very bottom of the timeline, I've also given you um, a, a, a diagram there showing the, uh, the, the family tree of Constantine. Um, hopefully that will help clear up some of the uh, confusion as we, as we deal with some of these names as we look at this, uh, this extensive period of church history. Well, last month we looked at the outbreak of the Arian controversy a controversy that disturbed the peace of the church throughout the 4th century. You'll remember the controversy had its beginnings in the church of Alexandria, when Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, excommunicated one of his most popular presbyters, a man named Arius, for teaching that Jesus was a creature. Well, Arius fled to Asia where he found allies and men like Eusebius, the bishop of Nicomedia. If you're familiar with church history, Eusebius is a, is a very common name. Not, not Eusebius of Caesarea, that's the church historian. This is a different Eusebius. There's quite a few Eusebiuses in church history. Uh, this is a different one, so I point that out. Uh, Eusebius of Nicomedia, he took up the Arian cause and rallied his fellow bishops of the East to protest Arius's treatment by Alexander. Well, dueling councils were held, each issuing their own condemnations and anathemas. Rioting broke out in the streets, so that at last Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, fearing that this theological controversy would tear his empire apart, ordered the convening of a great council the first so-called ecumenical council that met at the city of Nicaea in the year 325. A creed was drawn up expressing the the co-equality and co-eternality of the Father and the Son and condemned the teachings of Arius as heresy. Arius was exiled along with his supporters of the 318 bishops that were there at Nicaea, only two refused to go along with the council's decisions. So they are exiled with Arius and eventually uh, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who initially agreed with the the decisions at Nicaea. He himself would be exiled for his part in supporting Arius. Well, now, uh, all that we uh, we covered last time. You would hope that this would have been sufficient enough to deal with the controversy. But Arianism would not go quietly into the night. What unfolds over the next 55 years, from Nicaea in 325 to the second ecumenical council in the year 381, is a series of setbacks and advances. Nicaean orthodoxy would wax and wane depending on its favorability to the one who sat on the imperial throne. Uh, The blurred lines between church and state, the unintended consequence of Constantine's revolution, would actually come to haunt the church for the next millennium and beyond. In many ways, we're still dealing with the consequences of that that turn. Socrates, the church historian, not the ancient pagan philosopher, Uh, he describes the period as, uh, quote, a battle being fought in the night in that neither party understood the agenda of their opponents or the terrain upon which they stood, and yet both sides struck out blindly and violently at each other. In a similar fashion, Jerome, looking back and reflecting on the long fourth century, wrote, the entire world woke from a deep slumber and discovered that it had become Arian. At the center of this struggle for the heart of orthodoxy is a solitary figure, a man by the name of Athanasius 
of Alexandria. So solitary, in fact, that he earned for himself the nickname Athanasius Contramundum, which is Latin meaning Athanasius against the world. His life and his ministry are the focus of our study this afternoon. Now, who was Athanasius? Where did he come from? Like most, uh, most figures from this time in history, we know very little about his early years. Uh, they are, there are conflicting accounts. Some say that he was born into a pagan family. Others that he was raised by devout Christians. What is indisputable is that he came from a family that is well off, financially speaking. And we can say this because uh, they were able to afford an extensive education for their son. The writings of Athanasius bear proof that he was schooled in the great pagan classics and the Greek philosophers. He was a very smart person. Well, one story has it that Alexander... The aged bishop of Alexandria one day was uh, looking out uh, his window when his attention was drawn to a group of boys playing down by the waterside. He watched them for a while until it became obvious that the boys weren't playing your average run-of-the-mill child's game. They were playing church. One of the boys was clearly going through the liturgical rituals of baptizing the other boys. Well, uh, Alexander, horrified and alarmed that the sacrament might be profaned by these children, he, he summons the boys to himself and he starts to question them. And his focus falls on the one playing the part of the bishop, the one doing the baptizing. And of course, this is Athanasius. And after interviewing both Athanasius and the children that he had baptized, Alexander concluded that far from the sacrament being profaned, it had actually been conducted quite accurately. That the children uh, did not have to be baptized uh, again, that they were now to be treated as full members of the church. Well, as for Athanasius, the bishop decided to take him under his wing. Arrangements were made so that he could serve the bishop as his personal assistant, and the bishop Alexander would become to Athanasius like a father, and Alexander adored him as a son. There was hardly a time when Athanasius was not by his side. He even journeyed with him to the council of Nicaea and was there as the events unfolded, um, having been ordained as a deacon in the church of Alexandria. Well, when Alexander dies, uh, three years later, on April 17th, 328, Athanasius was the clear choice to replace him. Uh, he was, uh, for all intents and purposes, groomed by the bishop himself to be his successor. Uh, nonetheless, Athanasius' ordination was not without controversy, both in Alexandria and abroad. Now remember that Alexandria was the birthplace of Arianism. And that Arius was a very popular preacher, and therefore he still had quite a following in the city of Alexandria. Well, besides the Arians, another faction fought for influence in the city. Uh, that would be the Miletians. Now, uh, I mentioned the Miletians briefly last time, uh, just, just to say that the Council of Nicaea had come up with a way to try and reconcile them with the church. I didn't go into a whole, uh, whole lot of detail about who the Miletians were, but uh, because the Miletians do play a large part, uh, especially here at the beginning of our story, um, I hope you'll uh, allow me briefly to explain what their deal was, what, why, why they were even a thing. Well, the Miletian schism divided the church in Alexandria in the aftermath of the great Diocletian persecution uh, at the beginning of the 4th century, a persecution that only comes to an end thanks in large part to Constantine, his coming to power in the West and ending Christian persecution. Countless thousands died. One source I saw said as many as 25,000 were martyred at the hands of Diocletian. Uh, countless others, in order to avoid persecution, caved to Roman demands. Well, what does that mean? That means they cursed Christ, they sacrificed to the pagan gods, 
and therefore they escaped punishment. But now, now that the persecution was over, many of these apostates are starting to return to the church, uh, seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation. Well, the Miletians, the Miletians developed a hard-lined response uh, to, to these, to these uh, people returning. God might forgive them, but the church never can. That was the Miletian stance. They are forever barred from the fellowship of the church and from the Lord's table. The Orthodox, on the other hand, the Orthodox were more lenient, allowing for restoration after a time of testing, uh, after uh, ev an evident display of repentance. Well, this question caused a split in the church of Alexandria. So now you have both the Arians and the Miletians, who together would have gained greatly from having a bishop in their city who would not enforce the decisions that were made at Nicaea, they labored to get someone other than Athanasius in the office of bishop. But they were ultimately defeated. Athanasius was confirmed as the bishop of Alexandria. Well, while all this is going on, Constantine begins to have a change of heart. Remember, he had exiled Arius and his supporters like Eusebius of Nicomedia. But Eusebius had published a retraction of his former views uh, and publicly endorsed the Nicene Creed. And so, as a sign of unity, of toleration, the bishop uh, is restored to his former see. Constantine restores him. And once restored, it didn't take long for Eusebius to start lobbying for the restoration of Arius himself. Well, Arius had supposedly recounted his previous, uh, recanted, excuse me, recanted his previous views and had endorsed what we could call a harmless statement of faith. It avoided using any precise language that dealt with the relationship of the father uh, to the son. And with this, the emperor is satisfied. The order of exile is lifted, and Arius is now allowed to return to his home in Alexandria. But while the emperor could cancel the order to exile, he could not lift the ban of excommunication. According to the canons of Nicaea, the only one who could rescind the excommunication against an individual was the bishop who had imposed the excommunication. Well, for Arius, this meant the bishop of Alexandria, and Athanasius would have none of it. He did not trust that Arius's recantation was genuine, the fact of which was made all the more evident by Arius's allies, who at once began scheming on how to have the bishop removed. As a metropolitan, the bishop of Alexandria was more than just a pastor of a local church. He was an administrative figure, responsible for ordaining bishops throughout Egypt and Libya, and he also had other uh, civic responsibilities. Uh, so as long as Athanasius remained bishop of Alexandria, Arianism was dead in the water, at least in that region of the world. He had to go. But how? They couldn't charge him with teaching false doctrine. He, he was the main champion of Nicene Orthodoxy. Well, if they couldn't get him for bad doctrine, they would have to malign his character. And so they begin to level accusations against him to the emperor. The first of these accusations was uh, that one of Athanasius' servants, at the direction of the bishop, had entered into a church in the middle of a Sunday service there in Alexandria, had overturned the altar, shattered the chalice that held the communion wine, 
and physically assaulted the bishop. The bishop, by the way, happened to be a Miletian bishop. Well, in response to this accusation, Athanasius said, probably not very helpfully, well, he's not really a bishop. I mean, he's not legitimately ordained. I mean, you say church. It's not really a church. It's a Miletian church. Um, So in other words, there was probably some violence involved. Um, And this would earn Athanasius the reputation of somewhat of an ecclesiastical mob boss. But for now, uh, this answer was enough to get the accusation swept under the rug. Well, the second accusation leveled against the bishop was much more serious. Murder. Athanasius, they claimed, had murdered a Miletian bishop named Arsenius. And more than that, Athanasius had reportedly cut off the man's hand in order to use it for dark magic, whatever that means. They even produced the said bishop's severed hand as evidence. Well, this accusation was serious. And Athanasius was called to a council in the city of Tyre in the year 335 to answer these allegations. Well, as providence would have it, uh, it just so happened that Arsenius, the bishop that Athanasius murdered, Arsenius was hiding out in Tyre. And Athanasius found him. Uh, On the day of the trial, when Athanasius met with the accusations against him, he asked his opponents if they knew who Arsenius was, if they would be able to recognize him, if they saw him. And some said that they would. Well, at that, Athanasius called for the murdered man to be presented to the court, and in he comes, obviously not dead, with his hands covered by his cloak, Is this the man who lost a hand? He asked his accusers. Well, they clearly were not expecting Athanasius to have found Arsenius. He then drew back the cloak, exposing one of his hands. And then, after a dramatic pause, he revealed the other hand. Let my accusers show the place whence the third hand was cut off. No, so much for that accusation. I mean, they had a severed hand. That hand came, someone is missing a hand. And we don't know, history doesn't tell us where that hand came from. It's one of those mysteries that we'll, we'll, never, we'll never know what happened there. Obviously, things weren't going well for Athanasius' opponents. If they're going to get rid of him, they're going to have to change tactics. And so if they can't get him for false teaching or for corrupt morals... They have to take another route. Uh, The obvious one is politics. His accusers told the emperor that Athanasius had threatened to cut off the grain supply coming from Egypt. Now, understand, Egypt is the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Every year, roughly 510 million pounds of grain are flowing through Alexandria to the rest of the Roman world, the stability of the empire depended on Egyptian grain. And Athanasius was in such a position to make this accusation credible. Well, Constantine would not even tolerate the accusation long enough to hear out the truth of the matter. Athanasius was immediately condemned and ordered into exile. In February of 336, he is banished to Trier in the region of Gaul, what is in today Germany, and thus began the first of Athanasius' many exiles. Out of his 46-year-long episcopate, 17 of those years would be spent in exile, spread out over uh, four or five different, uh, different occasions. Well, the two years spent in Gaul must have seemed to Athanasius like something of a vacation, a reprieve from the tumultuous politics of the city of Alexandria. Constantine himself 
seems to have designed it to be a temporary stay. Uh, no one else was elected to take Athanasius' place. Um, Now, for all intents and purposes, he, he's still the bishop of Alexandria. Well, this was a problem for Arius' friends. Remember, their design is to get Arius back into the church, and that's not going to happen as long as Athanasius is the bishop. And so they plotted a workaround. A council was convened in Jerusalem, and it was decided that Arius would be reinstated, not in Alexandria, but in the church at Constantinople. So uh, a large celebration was planned on the eve before he was re to, to be received back into communion, uh, welcoming Arius back into the church. Uh, it was during that celebration that Arius, feeling the call of nature, uh, ducked into a public latrine, uh, and there he breathed his last, and he died. Uh, by the way, if you want nightmares, <laughs> do a Google image search of uh, Roman uh, public restrooms. <laughs> I, I, probably, I probably would have died too. Um, he did not live long enough to be reinstated uh, back into the church. Even Constantine, when he heard the news of Arius' ignoble death, chalked it up as a demonstration of God's righteous judgment. Well, Constantine himself was not long for this world. On May 22nd, 337, Constantine the Great, the first Christian Roman emperor, died. But not before being baptized on his deathbed by none other than Eusebius of Nicomedia. Uh, for all his talk about unity, it's almost unbelievable that upon his death, he had directed that the Roman Empire was to be carved up between his three sons. Constantine II would rule over Gaul and Africa, Constans uh, over Italy and Illyricum, and Constantius over Thrace and the rest of the East. Um, of these three, Constantine and Constans were baptized Christian. Uh, baptized Christians, Constantius was not baptized and had Arian sympathies. Well, Constantine had also arranged, so it appeared, for Athanasius to be restored to his office in Alexandria. So, after being absent a little over two years, uh, he finally returns home to shouts of acclamation. There had been riots and petitions to the emperor upon his exile, and that same frenzy carries over to celebrating his return to Alexandria. Though despised by his enemies, Athanasius, well-beloved by his flock in Alexandria. Well, as Athanasius took up again his responsibilities in Alexandria, Constantius began making moves in the east to favor Arian theology. The bishop of Constantinople was deposed and replaced by none other than Eusebius of Nicomedia. And in the winter of 338, a council of 90 bishops convened in Antioch. The council determined that Athanasius had resumed his office unlawfully, and another man named Gregory was elected and ordained to take his place. And so, during the season of Lent, Gregory shows up in Alexandria, accompanied by the military governor and 5,000 soldiers to take control of the church in Alexandria. They began their search for Athanasius on March 18th, 339, as the bishop went into hiding, eventually fleeing the city and making his way to Rome. Deprived of their bishop and being forced to acknowledge someone else, in his stead, the city once again erupted in violence and rioting. Even one of the churches was burned down as a result. Well, that Athanasius' second exile was spent in the company of Pope Julius II in Rome highlights the fact that the Arian controversy was very much an Eastern controversy. Uh, the West had been gifted the language of Trinity, substance and person 
to speak about the nature of God and the relationship of the persons of the Godhead by our friend Tertullian around the year 200. And they're more or less content not to pry any deeper into the mystery of the divine essence. For most in the West, Nicene Trinitarianism was a given as Eastern churches continued to be divided over the issue. Athanasius is received warmly by Julius when he arrives in the summer of 339, and he stays in Rome for the next seven years. Julius would labor to have Athanasius restored to his rightful office, pointing out the audacity of a local synod in Antioch. You could find Antioch on your map there. You'll notice, uh, well, if you find it, it's, uh, it's just north of, uh, of number three. Uh, is that where it is? Yeah, yeah. You go go uh, an inch or inch and a half or so up from number three there on your map. You'll find Antioch. Anyways, it's not in Alexandria. <laughs> it's not in Egypt. Um, and so Julius is pointing out uh, the audacity of, an, of a council in Antioch to depose a bishop of Alexandria. If Athanasius was to be replaced, his removal and replacement should have originated in the church of Alexandria. Among his fellow Egyptians not among his theological opponents. Athanasius, uh, in the meantime, he keeps busy while in Rome, preaching and writing apologetic works against Arianism. Well, a year after Athanasius arrived in Rome, a dispute between Constantine II and his younger brother Constans resulted in the older brother's death. And I apologize if the, <laughs> I, their, their sister's name was uh, Constantina. There was something wrong with this family. <laughs> it makes it all very confusing. Um, you have Constantine II, Constance, Constantius. Um, so Constantine II um, dies. Uh, Constance becomes the sole ruler of the West. Uh, thankfully, Constance is an Orthodox Christian. Uh, and as such, he is a great admirer of Athanasius. He petitioned his brother Constantius uh, to allow Athanasius to return to his see in uh, Alexandria, and uh, Constantius agrees. He allows for it. And so in October of 346, Athanasius arrives back home, once again welcomed with a grand reception. Well, this began what became known as Athanasius golden uh, decade from 346 to 356, a whole 10 years of uninterrupted service and ministry in the city of Alexandria. During this time, Athanasius became heavily involved in the work of Egyptian monasticism. Uh, he was much loved by the desert mystics. Um, Antony the Great, uh, the first of the great monastics, had himself petitioned Constantine uh, against Athanasius' first exile. And one of Athanasius' best-known works is his biography of Antony, uh, which he writes after the hermit's death in 356. Well, the work of the gospel went largely unhindered in the city of Alexandria. It's said that the crowds were so large for the Easter services of 355, that everything had to be moved to a partially completed cathedral that was being built by, uh, at imperial expense. The, the church there in Alexandria was too small to house all the people that showed up for services that day. But yet again, the fortunes of the church were tied to the political affairs of the empire. Constans, who was a key ally for Athanasius, is murdered, and this launches a civil war that comes to an end in 353, with Constantius becoming now the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, just as his father Constantine had been. Uh, now, without the now without opposition, Constantius was at liberty to undertake a wholesale remaking of the theological landscape. Constantius was an advocate of a mediating position between Nicene Orthodoxy and Arianism. Remember that catchword, 
that was used at Nicaea to check Arian heresy, that word homoousia, that the Father and the Son were consubstantial or of the same essence. This was opposed to Arius, who had taught that the Father and Son were heterousia, of a different substance. Well, the Arian party, under the leadership of Eusebius, came to understand that such a position was unpopular. The rhetoric needed to be toned down, and so another word was adopted, that the Father and the Son were to be understood as homoousia, uh, so the insertion of a single iota, a single eye in the middle of homoousia becomes homoousia, which means of a similar substance. Councils were called and creeds were produced with this compromised language. It's amazing the difference that a single iota can make, by the way. A council convened at Milan in the year 355 condemned Athanasius, And after repeated refusals to come before the emperor in the summer of 356, Roman legions are dispatched to take Athanasius by force. Uh, First, Athanasius hid in the city of Alexandria, hiding out for a time in an underground cistern. Eventually, he took to the Nile River. Sailing south, uh, he takes refuge among the desert monks. I don't have that in your map because it's it's, it's down here. It doesn't fit, so... That's where he is. He's down there, hanging out in the Egyptian desert with the monks. Well, in Athanasius' absence, another man named George assumes the office of bishop, and he begins heavily persecuting Athanasius' supporters. Virgins were thrown into prison. Bishops were led away in chains by soldiers. Houses of orphans and widows were plundered and their loaves taken away. Attacks were made upon houses, and Christians thrust forth in the night, and their dwellings sealed up. Brothers of clergymen were in danger of their lives on account of their brethren. As for Athanasius, from his exile in the desert, he continues to write extensively, and it, would, it actually proved to be one of the most productive periods of his life. Constantius Constantius wouldn't live forever. He had a cousin named Julian, who was very popular with the military. After a significant victory, his troops declare him emperor. Julian ran with this momentum. He marches on Constantinople to take the imperial throne for himself. Constantius, who at this time is old, is gravely ill, no shape to go to war, Uh, He's baptized by an Arian bishop, gathers his troop to meet his cousin in combat, and dies en route. Julian would be left as the ruler of the empire. Well, what's, what's with this guy Julian? Julian had been raised as a Christian, but was so enraptured by classical pagan culture. He styled himself as Julian the Philosopher. And he launched something of a pagan renaissance. Um, Lost my place in my notes here. Uh, He he wanted to see the old Roman religion revitalized. So in the cities of the empire, pagans and Christians started clashing in the streets. At one point, uh, in the city of Alexandria, a mob having dragged George, remember this is the guy that took Athanasius' place as the bishop there in Alexandria, they dragged George out of the church, fastened him to a camel, and when they had torn him to pieces, they burnt him together with the camel. This poor camel. Well, with George gone, and Julian kind of turning a blind eye to the affairs uh, of the church, Athanasius is free to once again returned to Alexandria. So after having spent six years in the desert, he he sneaks back into Alexandria and he resumes his office. Well, uh, at first, Julian is content to kind of leave the Christians to themselves, hoping that they would devour one another in their uh, theological squabbles. But soon it becomes pretty clear that that strategy isn't working. Uh, He he wants to see the pagan temples filled. 
And instead, more and more people are converting to Christ. And so Julian turns to actively persecuting the Christians. He passes laws that discriminate against them, taxing church property, prohibiting Christians from writing books, uh, barring them from civil office. Then he looks at Alexandria, and he notices Athanasius has snuck back into the city. He says, I didn't tell you, you can do that. And so (laughs) after only eight months, Athanasius goes back into the Egyptian desert. Thankfully, Julian isn't around for long. During a military campaign against the Persians, Julian is mortally wounded, and he dies in the summer of 363. Another military man, a man named Jovian, is declared emperor, and he is known as a devout Orthodox Christian. So the pendulum turns. Um, Julian's pagan renaissance comes to a screeching halt. His measures against Christianity are undone, and thus Julian the philosopher is better remembered in history as Julian the apostate. Jovian restores all the bishops that Julian had banished, including Athanasius. But the next year, in 364, Jovian mysteriously dies, and Valentinian becomes emperor in his stead. Valentinian makes the decision to divide the empire with his brother Valens. Valentinian will govern the west, Valens the east. And you could probably guess, Valens is a committed Arian. He does what he can to suppress Nicene orthodoxy, and this leads Athanasius, once again, to go into hiding. For four months, uh, beginning in October of 364, Athanasius lives in a family cemetery, and uh, this is his so-called fifth exile. The people of Alexandria petition Valens uh, to allow Athanasius to resume his work as bishop, and Valens, Valens has more of a a level head on his shoulders. Uh, He wants to avoid the riots uh, and the violence in the streets, and so he bows to their demands. Uh, Athanasius' fifth and final exile comes to an end. And so this policy, preferring peace and not risking civil unrest for theological gains, uh, this policy would prevail throughout the rest of Valens' reign, and thus for the rest of uh, Athanasius' life. It's during this time that he wrote his famous uh, 39th Festal Letter in 367. Uh, This letter gives us the first clear list of the books of the New Testament as we have them in our Bibles today. The reason for this emphasis uh, in his letter was to combat the Miletians. Uh, The Miletians, in their struggles for power in Alexandria, they like to quote uh, extra-biblical books in support of their position. Well, Athanasius lists the books of the New Testament and writes, These are the fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take aught from these. Well, Athanasius would enter into glory on May 3rd, of 373, and despite all his efforts, the Arian controversy would continue to rage. But light was on the horizon. In the year 380, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who, who we, uh, we prayed with this, this afternoon as we opened up our service together, uh, Gregory of Nyssa was one of the main defenders of the Trinity doctrine. He would preach a sermon in honor of Athanasius. And he opens with these words, In praising Athanasius, I shall be praising virtue. To speak of him and to praise virtue are identical, because he had, or to speak more truly, has embraced virtue in its entirety. Well, this same Gregory would preside the following year, in 381, over the church's second ecumenical council, 
in the city of Constantinople, where Nicene Trinitarianism would once again be reaffirmed and the Arian controversy would effectively be brought to an end. And we'll take up uh, the Council of Constantinople in our next meeting. But uh, that's all I have for you this afternoon. Um, do we have any questions or comments before we go ahead and close our time together? I need that. Do we have a comment? Yeah, sure. We, uh, we, we, we uh, get the mic for the, uh, the, the audio recorder for the people at home that are listening. Oh, okay. So, yeah, don't be nervous. <laughs> Perfect. Welcome. Welcome to the church. Nice, nice to meet you. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that Constantine is the first Christian emperor. Yes. But there are uh, people who say he really wasn't Christian because of all the paganistic type things that he did, such as building right, an right. archway with really uh, paganistic type references that are found in the archway itself. Right, right, right. And that it was just a move to cause peace in his, in his area, not that he actually was a Christian. So what do, what do you say? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, Pastor Kyle, so uh, Pastor Kyle has taken us through uh, a series on church history uh, a couple of years ago um, during the, uh, just before the pandemic, um, Everyone else knows this. Um, and, and so he, I say that just to direct you to his teaching on Constantine, where he, he addresses that at, at, at length. Um, Constantine, I think on, on one hand, we need, we need to give Constantine um, a bit of grace in the fact that he is the first person to hold that much political power who has embraced Christianity. What does that look like? How, how, do, you, how do you do that effectively? Um, for, for all intents and purposes, Rome, Rome is still a pagan empire. So, so what, what, what does that look like? Um, and so there, there are things that uh, we would look at today, looking back now with all that we know and all the things that Constantine did, and it would cause us to raise some eyebrows, for sure. Um, but then there are other things that are... are uh, difficult to explain, um, apart from some genuine conversion. Uh, his favoring of Christianity in, uh, in excluding church property from taxes, uh, what does that gain him politically? Um, his, uh, his ordering for uh, the Lord's Day to be a public holiday so that Christians, uh, Christians can freely gather um, without having to be encumbered by work. Uh, what does that get him for, for doing that? Um, and then other things that he did uh, to, to favor Christians, restoring the property that had been taken from them during the persecution. There are things like that that, that would, would well, why would he even do that if, if, he, if his profession of faith wasn't, wasn't genuine? Um, other examples could be given. I'm just kind of going off the top of my head. But yeah, you, you're right. There, there are things in Constantine's life that... Uh, that Today, we would say, that, that doesn't fly. As, as a Christian, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, but looking back uh, at who he was in history, I, I think you've got to give the guy a, a bit of grace. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's generally how I, I would approach Constantine. But you're right. There, there, are, there are certainly some things in his life that, that, that seem to be inconsistent with the genuine profession of faith. That, that, that's true. That's true. We... we we don't do any favors by not admitting that. So, yeah. Any other thoughts or comments? I think, too, like uh, Kyle has said before, like I, I went back through his church history stuff and I listened to it, and kind of like what you're saying, too. Kyle said this if we looked at history and a lot of historical figures, Puritans, you know, all over the place, you know, many different. Uh, men, you know, from the past, we wouldn't find any 
more than likely wouldn't find any that actually agree perfectly with what we think. Many of them held a different, you know, understandings. They were they were in a different time historically where um, there were different heresies they were dealing with, and they sought to 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 work that out. And as Kyle has said before, history it. it you know, it doesn't happen immediately. It happens in time. And so like you're saying, there is a grace. There are brothers we love, you know, uh, Puritans and reformers that we read, even Presbyterians that we, that we love that we don't agree on certain things. We go, oh, man, that's a really weird thing that they were holding to. And yet at the same time, these were men and, and women that loved Christ. And, yeah, they figured things out as they went along. And we know all of us are going to die with error. None of us are going to be perfectly infallible because we're not God. Yeah. And that's where we get to go to eternity and learn more and more in a place where our, air, our minds are no longer affected by the fall. So. Right, right. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Any thoughts or comments before we, questions before we close our time together? All right, well, while Brother Aaron comes uh, forward to lead us in our concluding hymn, uh, let me go ahead and uh, let's turn one more time in prayer to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy toward us. Lord, though that we are, we are a fallen people, in many ways, Lord, we, we do not obey your commandments. We do not live up to the high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus, yet, Lord, you are our God still, and you are merciful toward us. Um, and we see uh, your, your hand of mercy and grace in display throughout church history in the lives of men like Athanasius, not a perfect man, but, Lord, a, a man that you used and raised up to be bold in uh, the face of earthly powers, uh, to declare the truth of your word regardless of what it would cost him. And yet a man who was wise um, in knowing when to flee and, and when to fight, I pray, Father, that you would give us that same boldness uh, to trust in your word um, as we sing in the hymn, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, uh, the body they may kill, uh, your truth abides still, for your kingdom, Lord, is forever. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to fix our gaze upon that heavenly reward that is ours in Christ Jesus as we continue in our own context, in our own day, to labor for the truth of your word and to stand boldly upon the truth that we have inherited from our fathers in the faith. We pray, Father, that we would learn from men like Athanasius, uh, from his, uh, uh, his virtues and also from his mistakes, that we might avoid them that we, Lord, might be all the more faithful in the service of your kingdom. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.